Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome this week's guest to the Chase and Discomfort podcast. I'm honoured to have the opportunity to sit down with Trevor Terrell. But before we dive into your story, Trevor, what does it mean to you to chase discomfort and why? Thanks very much, Jay, and thanks for the intro. I'll try and live up to that throughout this. Um, I thought about this when, when you first started talking to me, and I think it, to me, just means be relentless in whatever it is you want to do. You know, don't accept, you know, the norm. Don't accept comfort. Don't accept staying in your lane. Um, I think there's a bit of confusion nowadays with positive reinforcement saying you can be whatever you want to be, which we all know isn't true. You know, I'm, I'm really into CrossFit. I'd love to be as good as Fraser. It's never going to happen. You know, age, genetics and ability are totally against me for that. But uh, I think in your, in your lane, in your ability level and whatever it is you're doing, you should always chase to be at the top of it, at the top of your your group or the top of whatever it is you're doing, always push as hard as you can. And don't think being uncomfortable or being out of your comfort zone is, is the way to be. Actually, pushing out of it is what you should always strive for, I think. And it always ends up improving you in the end up. It's difficult. It's not easy. And most of the time we don't like it. But for me, chasing discomfort physically or at work or at home or whatever I'm doing is, you know, never staying in my comfort zone, never keeping it easy, always trying to be better. So I think for me, that's what it means. Yeah. And, you know, that really sort of sums up the whole ethos behind, you know, these podcasts and, and the chase and discomfort is it's, you know, it's not about hammering yourself 24 hours a day. However, you know, effort is clearly a choice and, you know, whether it is a mental or physical challenge as long as you're aware that it's you versus you or, you know, me versus me, that, you know, you are, you, you know, deep down, whether you're putting in 110% effort or not, or you're sandbagging a, you know, a work project or, a, you know, you go into a workout a little bit half-hearted, you know, you, we all know deep down if when you really push yourself. And um, for me, you know, it's when you, when you really sort of push those zones that's when hardship and character grows and you really find out who you are, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's testament to the, to the ethos. So fantastic answer. Yeah. Thank you. I agree with exactly what you said there. You know, I think too yeah. many people use comparison, you know, or oh, that, that girl, or that guy did better than me. And, and that's not an apples for apples necessarily. You know, I find it constantly in CrossFit, you know, a lot of people say, oh, I'm not fitness for CrossFit. And it's like, None of us were when we started, you yeah. know, and none of us are as fit as other people. And, none, you know, compare yourself to what you were six months ago and then set where you want to be in six months. That's your discomfort. Get there. Yeah, sort of, you know, realistic, tangible goals that, yeah. you know, like, like you said, I, I would love to be able to say I'm going to qualify for the games in the Masters. Um, maybe if I dedicated nothing but three solid years to it, you never know. But when you're juggling work, family, life commitments, um, you know, I'm not a pro athlete. So uh, we take the rough with a smooth and we hit the pain cave when we can and get a sweat on and make sure yeah. we, we go in hard and then, yeah, we go from there. Yeah, totally. Have you trained today? I have. Only of, course you have. of course you have. Yeah, only, only a single session today, though. I was, I was lazy. Just the one? Yeah, just the one today. No doubles today. What did you get up to? Uh, just went for a run tonight. Um my wife was, uh, she's doing the London Triathlon in August the 8th. So she was doing an open water swim. 
So I had an hour to kill and rather than sit in my hands, I said, look, I'll drive you up and uh, while you're swimming in the lake, I'll run round it. So that's what I did. Nice. Was that over at Trifarm? Yeah, it was, yeah. yeah. Ten laps. It was mind-numbingly boring, <laughs> I have to say. It really was, but got the, got the work done. So that's it. I'm happy. We went for a run last night and we was talking about actually um, the first time we done a swim, run, swim over at Trifarm. And um, I was just gobsmacked at how my calves and hips felt after coming off the swim. Um, And I'm not a strong swimmer whatsoever. Uh, I'm probably not a strong strong runner either. But, um, yeah, just that transition of going from the swim to the run, like I could feel my calves uh, not cramping up, but just getting tight, you know. So it was an interesting little scenario. Is um, Is the London try, is that the one that's in the serpentine, the swim? No, it's uh, Docklands XL. Ah, right, okay. So you're in the dock and then the run's around the XL and then it's uh, XL to Westminster and back on the bike. Other way around, obviously, bike run. Yeah, yeah, yeah she's, she's looking forward to it. I don't, I don't train with her anymore. She's, she's, uh, she's too good in the water. She doesn't put <laughs> any effort in. She's just graceful and I'm beating the water to a <laughs> foam and I get out 10 seconds before her and it just deflates me. She's, <laughs> just, she's relentless in the water, so... Yeah, fair play. Good yeah. Stuff. Right. Let's dive into your journey then, Trevor. Let's rewind it all the way back to day one. Um, yeah. Let's go from the start. So where, whereabouts was you born and raised? Um, born in London, High Barnet, so, but raised all over the world because my father and mother at the time when I was born were both in the army. Mm-hmm. So... Um, very quickly moved to Germany. Obviously, I didn't remember that. I was still very young. Um, spent eight or nine years in Germany, in Cyprus, uh, Nigeria, Hong Kong, uh, Northern Ireland, lots of different places, lots of moving around. Uh, usually every two or three years, obviously, spent a while in Germany where we moved around different areas in Germany. But overall, you know, those, those sort of five or six places. Uh, and then came back uh, to the UK sort of when I was... I, I went to school here, but sort of for living, came back when I was just over 17. So from sort of six months to 17, we lived all over the world, really, never really in the UK. And out of all those countries at that age, what, what's the sort of biggest standout memory for you? Hong Kong. I loved it. I, I still do. Every time I go back there, I'm, I'm a bit like a giddy school child. Mm. You know, it just it's like... You take your kids to Disneyland, they walk in. That's our feeling in Hong Kong. I just, I don't know, the bright lights. And it just gets to me every time. Even at 54, you know, I've been there a few times and uh, quite a few times. And every time I get off the plane, I'm just like, I love it here. You know, there's just all those things, the stimulus, you know, there's lights, it's loud. It never stops. Three o'clock in the afternoon, three o'clock in the morning. The only difference is how much sun or how little sun you get. And that is really it. You know, it's just vibrant um, and always on the go and that for me you know I, lo- I love that mm. I love it I love the culture out there as well so and there's some great places around it you know Portuguese China Macau and you get all those different places different influences it's uh yeah that part of the world is sort of that's my standout place nice. um, I'm not a, I'm not a sit still sit on the beach type of person as we'll <laughs> find out as we go here so um school in England yeah finished at 17 yeah, I did. What was the next step? Um, it, w- it was odd. I started going to school wherever we lived. Um, 
and I was not very attentive. I'm sure a lot of your listeners can identify with that. I, you know, and I was easily distracted because I was physically an active individual. You know, I was a very active child. I think that's why my mum and dad only ever had one kid because they were like, we're not doing this again with this one, you know? Um, and so I ended up going to boarding school, which was a fortunate coincidence through the military. You know, it, it provides for service personnel to send their kids to boarding school and give them stability. You know, if you're moving every two years, it's not, not great. And I was struggling academically because of that. So I went to boarding school, did reasonably well at exams. Um, and then on leaving, I'd always had what I wanted to do in my head from about 12 years old. Um, I knew what I wanted to do. Um, but, you know, as, as is the case, and especially with my mum and dad, they were quite um, strong characters. So, you know, they were quite influential initially in what they thought I should do, you know. Um, and they wanted me to join the military as an officer, um, you know, and I really didn't want to do that. But, you know, along the way, I, I sort of, looked at doing that um i went to college to do my a levels to make it possible to to join the military as an officer um but really still my only ambition was to do what i ended up doing which was to join the marines so you know um i did take all the entrance exams i did you know get offered a place but it just wasn't what i wanted out of life you know and i, I knew that like I said, I knew from 12 years old and I can recount the moment I knew what it was I wanted to do. And it's always stuck with me. I'm 54 now and I remember it as if it was yesterday. So, you know, it was that light bulb moment that stuck with me. And that's what, you know, and you say about chasing discomfort, that was sort of one of the ultimate chase discomforts for sort of 25 years of my life from that point. So as a 12-year-old, I'm intrigued. What was it that really sparked the interest for the Marines? Uh, it was, it, it, it probably sound a bit daft to you. Any of your listeners here who, uh, who've got military links or been in the military will probably be able to relate. Um, we were living in Northern Ireland and I was on a camp and, and basically there were a load of Marines there. There were a load of soldiers, army from my father's battalion, and there was a load of Marines and I don't know, they just stood out. They were dressed differently. They, they just walked with a different manner and a, a different air about them. And they stood out. And I started talking to them and they were kind of a bit confused. You know, who's this kid in the middle of this sort of one, you know? Um, and it just literally clicked in my head. And I said, oh, who are you? And I remember, you know, they said, oh, we're Marines. We're from 4-5 Commando, um, from Zulu Company. And I was like, right, okay. And then I was talking away, you know, and a couple of other guys said, oh, we're from X Company. And, you know, however many years later, I ended up being in X Company in 4-5 Commando. So it was, you know, the identification and the realisation of what you wanted to do from that moment. And what age did you join? Uh, I left it a bit later. So I joined at 20. The reason being, I kind of, I'd seen my father. He joined, um, he joined boy service in the Navy really young at 14, which he could do. Um, and then he went into the Merchant Navy and then he joined the army and he spent his whole life in the army. And I, I kind of, you know, I admired him for that. But on the flip side, it's like if that's all you do your whole life, bearing in mind as an other rank, you've only got 22, maybe up to 25 years of service. You know, you come out and you've never known anything. So I, I did a few jobs and sort of enjoyed myself as a 18, 19 year old boy. You know, going on holiday with the lads, going to football, working my job, spending all my money two days after payday and all those things a lot of people have done. You know, so I kind of wanted to do that and have it 
and have done it. So I, I realised what the normal world is like because the military, anybody will tell you, is not a normal world. You know, you're very protected in a lot of ways um, from the sort of day-to-day -day trials and tribulations that we all have. You, you're insulated from that. Um, so I joined at 20, having had a couple of years working a normal job and living a normal life and doing the normal things that 18 to 20 year old boys do. You know? So that was kind of kind of me. Can you um, give us a little bit of your memory on day one? Of the Marines? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it was a blur. Um, when you, when you, I, I'll always give the example because I know that. When you join the Marines, you go to Limpston in Devon um, on, the, on the banks of the X, just outside Exeter, between Exeter and Exmouth. And it actually has its own train station. It's called Limpston Commando. So you always, I'm not sure if it's still the same, I assume it will be, but you always arrived by train. And, you know, you had a certain times bracket to arrive in. And you get there and there's this guy just stood there in uniform and he was perfectly turned out. And, uh, you know, you stood there and he asked your name and it was all very polite and quite, quite relaxed. And obviously I'd been subjected to the military, so I knew that wasn't going to stay that way for for very long and then he put you in some kind of formation and said right you're just going to pick your kit up and walk and you go through the gates the gates stop and there was an armed sentry there and then it was genuinely like a switch being flipped when you walk through those gates the, the tension and the the atmosphere was just different you know and i was like yeah and i can't i can't lie my backside was going 50 20 10 you know as fast as as it could and i was thinking oh have i done the right thing here you know been waiting for this for a long time and it's here now is it the right thing so and yeah it was just a blur you know you go up get into your accommodation um you know and then that's at that stage and they still do it now it's one big room so there's sort of 40 of you in one room um it's called induction and they're just basically teaching you their way of doing the basics of washing cleaning and ironing um you're tested at night you know and and that's it you go to bed and next day it all starts you know, the gloves, the gloves that were only partially on are fully off and you're in it and then that's you, you know, 30 weeks later, you, you're either passed out or you're left by the wayside. There was a documentary a few years back, um, I don't know if you ever see it, but it was about new recruits going in at Limpston um, and, I, and I remember <coughs> watching it and, you know, the guys were literally standing in the shower telling them, you know, you wash behind your ears, you wash here, you wash there. This is how you iron your shirt. This is what your cupboard should look like. This is what your bed should look like. It was, you know, like the template was very, very clear of what everything should look like. Um, but you, You'd be surprised, Jay. A lot of it is, a lot of people actually don't know those things. And, and everybody's sitting, come on. Genuinely, people don't, didn't, I, and I was on a training team. I had the misfortune to be on one of those shows, actually. Um, like as a corporal taking recruits through training, but some of them genuinely don't know how to shower properly, you know. Um, and it, it's it's you know you have to think about the the diversity of people that go into the Marines from you know wh whatever you know that means in terms of their backgrounds. You know, the guy sleeping next to me in training was a designer for Lotus, <laughs> and he wanted he always wanted to join. He tried to join as an officer, failed, so he joined. You know, and the guy was 
hugely intelligent, but he couldn't iron a shirt properly. It took him an hour to iron one shirt, you know, three o'clock in the morning, he's still doing this stuff. And we're all like, we're going to turn the light out. We could do, we're getting some sleep at some point, yeah. you know? So. How long does that induction phase last? Two weeks, two weeks. So it's all the, it's all the basics, you know, they introduce you, like you just said, they should, you get all your kit and equipment. It might have changed now. There'd be some variations now because it's uh, training is a lot more sophisticated now. Um, you know, there's a lot more structure. Not that it was unstructured back then. There's a lot more structure around it. There's a lot more science in regards to teaching applied now. But you still, you know, you get all your equipment. You learn how to wear your equipment, how to clean it, how to iron it, and all those kind of things. How to put all your um, webbing equipment, your uh, salt gears or your body armor and all this equipment. You've got to learn how to use it, how to clean it, how to look after it. Um, they get you in the gym pretty quick, you know, and uh, that's always a shock to the system. Um, and then from there, you know, they get you into regular training where you start really learning, you know. At that point, it's a, I'll say it in a nice way, it's a little bit of indoctrination, you know. They introduce you to what it means to be a Royal Marines commander. They introduce you to the history, who you're joining, what you're joining, the standards that others have set that you aspire to. You know, and that's a big deal. Um, and, and that's what the whole ethos of the organisation is. You know, these these people did this. You know, one day, you know, you you will live up to that standard. So, you know, it's quite a pressure if you think about it in those terms. Luckily, at 17 to 21, we're not emotionally intelligent enough to think like that. You know, at 54, I sit here in my nice, comfortable chair talking to you. Yeah, I can. But, you know, back then you're just like, oh, wow, that sounds great. I want to do that. Yes, please. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a different thing. Once you get older, you look back and go, now I get it. Now I saw what it was about. Can you give us um, sort of your take on the experience of the Royal Marines? Because um, in, in, from, you know, my experience, they're obviously a prestigious uh, group of soldiers that have this air of... Um, you know, being uh, holding very high standards and being the guys that, you know, do the job, no mucking around. And, you know, like, like when you said, when you met those guys at the age of 12, there was, there's just something different. There's this aura about the um, Marines that just stand out differently. Yeah, I, I think you see it with, uh, and I, I know you've talked to a couple of different people on your podcast previously, you see it with, Everybody who comes from that sort of background, you see it with guys that have been in a parachute regiment. Um, there, there is this thing of being part of an elite unit and, and they are elite in terms of their training and, you know, what they do and the standards they set. They are, it is higher. So, you know, you get a different mentality. My ex-wife always used to say she could tell a serviceman and she, you know, within a group of people and she could tell a Marine within a group of servicemen. So there was just something different. They stood out. It's not arrogance, but it is. You know, it's a confident arrogance rather than just arrogance, if that makes any sense. You know, you just know that you can do your job. You know you can do it well. You know you can keep going longer than, than most other people, you know. And, I, and like I say, the same is true of the parachute regiment, you know, and, and units like that. And then if you speak to people overseas, you get, get the same thing, you know, when you talk. I've done a lot of training in the U.S. and you get things like the, the Rangers, you know. They've got a tradition, a history, and you know, they're of the same ilk. So, you know, it, uh, it just breeds that, that confident arrogance. So once you're 
two week inductions complete the the next stage i'm assuming is um is like a selection stage are you, are you whittled down to prove no good they enough? don't they don't approach the whole of training is a selection in terms of there are benchmark tests all the way through and they're not just physical tests there's you know training on how to use weapons there's training on how to operate in the field there's you know written tests there's map reading there's all the basic skills that once combined produces a very basic product at the end of it and i i mean basic in terms of you don't know anything other than the basics you know then you much like your driving test if we all think about how we do our driving test our driving instructor teaches us to pass our test we actually learn when we get out on the road on our own you know and your friends say take us to mcdonald's after they've been to the pub at one in the morning <laughs> you know and you're sitting there shitting yourself driving going oh gosh the police pull me out you know and we all learn how to drive after the fact yeah. same principle you know we're we're taught all the basics um and then you learn when you leave but you, you move out of the sort of two-week induction and you move into the first 13, 14 weeks. And that is the basic skill. So all they're doing there is teaching you the basics of being a soldier, you know, not a Marine, a soldier, you know, how to operate a weapon system or weapon systems, how to, how to take care of yourself, how to operate in the field, you know, all the basic skills. Um, and then they have a, a test exercise and then you move from that part of training into the second part, which is the commando training portion, where they introduce, you know, a more advanced tactical skills. They introduce the skills of a Marine, they introduce the skills of a, a commando. So both the maritime and the mountain, you know, and all those type of things. And then the physical training changes as well, it goes from being gym and strength based to being outside still strength based but then endurance based as well and you know it sort of ramps up across the across the period so it's kind of the the ethos and and the idea behind it give me a description of some of the most infamous workouts that you can recall from your time that really tested your your metal um i i had two things that got me i was never particularly good and it's ironic now because I don't find it hard when I go to CrossFit and rope climbing's on the on the programming, but ropes were a difficult thing. Um, you know, they're thirty foot ropes in training in the Marines. You know, and you start off climbing them in the gym, just in the the equipment or the gym gear you wear, um, and then you go, you eventually go out to what was known in my time as bottom field, which is the assault course. But you climb the thirty foot rope with twenty five pound of equipment. 12 pound rifle and you know boots jacket and all that um i found that quite difficult you know i struggled with rope climbing because physically in my upper body i was decent at running i was decent at carrying weight on my back you know and speed marching and all those things but i did find the upper body stuff quite difficult um and that that stayed with me for quite a few years i've got to say probably the first five or six years i was never you know as good with my upper body strength as i was with sort of the cardio and the endurance piece. Um, and the other thing I struggled with was, was swimming, the battle swimming test. You know, it wasn't particularly difficult, but uh, it was just, you know, poor swimmer. But it, I wasn't the worst. There was a, a crack in. So first time in the pool, go to the pool, you stand on the diving board, you jump in, you swim a length and back, and then you tread water for X amount of time to gauge so they... The PTIs, physical training instructors, can gauge your your ability in the pool. So obviously, I'm in the 
<laughs> in the bit where you've got water wings and they're like, yeah, you need to go and get some help. And there was a, a, a young gentleman called Harry Porter Tame and he jumped off and he just sank straight to the bottom. And so I remember it sort of not really paying attention because you don't look around. There's, you know, it's not, not that type of organisation where you're allowed to daydream. And I could see a bit of a commotion. One of the PTI sort of fished him out of the pole. And my PTI was a, a guy who, who later became a, a quite a good sort of friend stroke acquaintance called Ricky Miller. And he said, recruit Porter Tame, what are you doing? He said, I can't swim. He said, why did you jump? He said, you told me to. And I was like, yeah, I think I, think I would have said no, thanks. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going in the sort of deep end, the 12 foot end, I'm just going to sink. And he just did it, you know, straight away. So it, That is literally just chucking him in at the deep end. It really was. It was, it was the physical proof of that. So, yeah. yeah. But um, bottom field was the, the one a lot of Marines, you know, if you speak to, I know you've had quite a couple on um, different people. Bottom field was tough, you know, the assault course, the rope climbing, the fireman's carry and, and the regain, you know, the rope climb was just uncomfortable. If you got good technique, it was easy. The assault course was five minutes, you know, like I said, 25 pound a kit, 12 pound rifle. And it, it was go as hard as you can. You know, there was no opportunity. If you messed up on an obstacle and there was a way to treat each obstacle, you know, you'd be lucky to get in. The uh, fireman's carry was 200 metres in 90 seconds or less, carrying your, all your kit and your partner and his kit on your shoulder. You know, that, that was just a lung buster. You know, it was brutal. And it was as bad being carried as it was, you know, carrying someone. There was no let up. You get to the other end and it's his turn to carry you. And you can't, you know, you're breathing out your ass at the time. <laughs> <laughs> and then you've got to jump on his back and you're bouncing around. So, yeah, that, you know, that was really uncomfortable, you know. And that, that, was, uh, that would be something for you to see as chasing discomfort. That was, that's the epitome of it, that, that place. And uh, most recruits and most, most Marines will say bottom field was one of their, you know. There are some sick, weird individuals that loved it, but majority of us, you know, just struggled. And, and worked as hard as we could and hoped we didn't get any extra time there. But the funny thing about it was we used to have a period beforehand, which would always end up for some reason at the time I was in, being with the, the chaplain, the padre. And he was talking about the morality of war and how you sort of think about it, because that is something that, you know, people should have thought about because ultimately that that's our job. And, uh, all it really was, was the, the, when you went into the sort of the church and you sat down, it was a safe space. The training team never went in there and you got a cup of tea and a biscuit and it was really relaxed and lovely. And all anybody was thinking was, shit, we've got bottom field after this. <laughs> and that was it. You know, it's like, oh, please hurry up. I'm just sitting here torturing myself for 45 minutes because it was all calm and serene. And it was the only time, the whole time you're in training that it's calm. You know, everything else is 100 mile an hour. I, I picture the sort of PTIs. I've got this like stereotypical vision of them with this, you know, very neatly turned out, shaven, might have a bit of a, a fancy tash going on in the in the tight sort of white top, which is sort of screaming at you. Go with it. They are horrible people. They're, their courses, you know, they, they do, I believe it was 19 weeks their initial course, you know, and 
you know, they go on to proper diets and nutrition plans, you know, with supplements. And, you know, they're doing four or five physical sessions a day because it's an instructor role. So they're learning how to instruct those. But you've got to have people to do it. So the other members of the course are the, you know, are the recruits. So while I'm standing out front, if I'm trying to become a physical training instructor, all my colleagues on the course, they're doing what I'm telling them. So, you know, they get absolutely thrashed within an inch of their life. You know, they really do. So, and it it's, it's goes back to what I said at the beginning. It's never over. And that organisation typifies that for me. And that's what gives me that mindset, even before sort of I knew you through um, CrossFit and met you and, you know, heard about your podcast and that, you know. I'd never thought of the words chasing discomfort, but... I was always living that, you know, it was, n- n- didn't matter what you did, any course in the Marines, they made it as hard as they physically could, as hard as they could mentally, you know, what everybody else did in four weeks, we were doing two because you don't need to sleep. And that was the ethos and the mentality. And that goes back, that's where you get that confident arrogance from. So of the 40 guys that started out with you in your induction, roughly how many uh, got sort of handed the, the green barrel. We, we started actually with 55 because they, they've got the buildings kind of odd without sort of detracting from, from the sort of chat, but it's got a downstairs. And so they, we, I think we started with 55 and we passed out, <laughs> I'm going to say about 23 originals and two people from troops who had, you know, been injured or failed and come back. So I think we had 25 out of 55. So, fairly high attrition rate. Yeah, yeah, well, well over half. So, for any of the guys that failed any of the courses, are you allowed to just go back into the circle, or is there a limited number of times before they say, you know, that's you've had a, too many bites of the cherry, off you go, Sam? They do, they do draw the line eventually, but they do give people, you know, ample opportunity. Um, you know, a physical, a physical fail, if you think about it physically, if you've got there and they've said you are fit enough to, to come and try training, if you're physically failing something, that can always be remedied because you've shown you've got the basic ability at the start, you know. So it just comes down to work. And people who failed things physically, they went into a troop um, called Hunter Troop and they just got annihilated, you know. Nobody ever went in there twice. Um <laughs> There are, you do get a lot of serious injuries. Um, you know, you get a lot of really serious injuries and they keep you um, in, in hunter troop, which has two sort of parts, those who fail something physically and those who, who are injured um, until you're able to uh, rejoin training or until you're as fit and healed and well as you possibly can be. And then if you're no longer able to con- continue because of a physical injury, then you're, you're released once you've recovered. But I mean, the, in fairness, you know, the Marines, their sort of rehab and their physical um, rehab facilities, plans, you know, and, and the whole infrastructure around that is, is really significant. And, you know, from my limited knowledge, you know, it's still, you know, right up there. It's, it's on elite sport team level, what, what they are able to do. And, you know, the standard, you know, physical training instructors go and become physiotherapists you know and that's a year-long course they do and you know they the the um provision to get people through and, and and fix people who break themselves is is well thought out and well structured and like i say you know it's that elite sport team level yeah pretty much. it goes hand in hand i suppose with the standards that they set 
you know, not only for the recruits, but, you know, the Marines, once you pass out, it's just seems to be very, very high standards across the board. Yeah, it is. And it's, it comes back to that pride. You know, everything we do, we want to be better than everybody in the army. At it. Everything. And that's just, you know, you talk to, you've talked to Marine guys in Marines, you know, they're not ex-Marines. They are raw Marines. You know, once a Marine, always a Marine, you know, and, and Marines are, Marines are a quirky um, bunch of individuals. If you go to America and you talk to people in the armed forces there, their Marines are different. You know, you go to Holland and talk about the Dutch Marines, the Dutch military will say our Marines, are, they're, they're odd. You know, they are a special breed among us. Not, not necessarily, you know, better than, but they, they've just got a different mentality. I don't know. It's a combination of being a soldier from the sea, if you will. It, they just all and all Marines identify with Marines from other countries more than soldiers from their own, if you will. Mm. You know, so, but yeah, everything they do, you know, the sniper course, which I was fortunate to go on, you know, is recognised as one of the hardest courses. You know, the mountain leader course is recognised as producing some of the best mountain, you know, and, and cold weather warfare troops and instructors, you know, anywhere. So, you know, the, the Marines has got got the the base product and it's got the expertise in a lot of areas. So, you know, and, and that's kind of good for me because that's what drove me out through life, you know, what, what they instilled in me, indoctrinated. How many years service have you got under your belt? Uh, I was just 19, I was. Uh, 19 years. I, I, you know, I left. I got promoted and I was going to end up in an office job and it wasn't going to be the office job without going into the, the whys and the wherefores. It's all awfully, awfully complicated for sort of lay listeners here. But, um, I, you know, I was going to end up in an office and not an office job I wanted. And so, you know, I decided to vote with my feet. I didn't want to stay and people were saying you should stay for your pension. I didn't want to, you know. It was a job I'd always wanted. I wanted to leave it. And, and remember it fondly. I never wanted to sort of, you know, not like it. I never wanted to think bad of it. And I never have. You know, I, I made my choice and I've never regretted it. I don't do regret. It's a waste of time. You know, if you make a choice and it's you think it's the right choice at the time, you should never regret it because we're all awesome with hindsight, you know. But for me, you know, I left and I went on and I've, you know, had an interesting work time there. I never say I've had a career since I left because... That was my career, you know. I'd have done that job for nothing, you know, quite quite happily. You know, all work now is is about lifestyle. You know, the ability to lead the lifestyle I want. You know, I've used what it's taught me, and I've been very fortunate and quite lucky in some of the things I've done. Um, you know, and I earn a decent living, and all, I'm I'm very fortunate for that. Um, and it's that ethos that that stuck with me, you know. But yeah, I did just shy of 19 years and then I left, you know, decided to leave um, and go out. And... Well, firstly, thank you for your service. Well, very kind of you to say so. I, I think, um, you know, I know the brotherhood and, and within, within the military gang, you know, you guys are a very tight knit, even if you've left years ago. And, you know, I'm not too sure that sometimes the, the, the general members of public really appreciate what you guys do and what you go through to, um, you know, help protect uh, British Isles. So, um, yeah, thank you and well done. I'm really intrigued and would love to know a bit more about the, um, the sea and the mountain sort of exercises that you got up to. So um, maybe if you could sort of just cover off a couple of the most sort of standout exercises that you completed. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean... They are sort of the bread and butter. So 
the, the Marines is organized into what are called commando units. And there's, there's three of them. There's 40 commando, 42 and 45. Um, 40 commandos in Taunton, 42 commandos down just outside Plymouth, and then four fives up in Arbroath in Scotland. Um, and they, for a while, they used to sort of specialise. So 40 commando were called the Sunshine Commando. They did everything, you know, everything in the Mediterranean, anything to do with the desert and anything to do with the Far East and the jungle. And four five were, at the time I joined, and before I joined and as I joined, they were sort of the Arctic commando. So they went to Norway every year. Um, they, that did change a few years after I'd been in, you know. They realised there was no... There was no sense in maintaining that. They sort of spread it out and everybody, you know, it's better to have a Marine who can go to any environment than to have one unit because, you know, they might already be deployed and then you've got a skill gap and a skill fade as well. So, um, and it used to, the training cycle was based around two things. So when you went to Norway, the precursor, you usually go to Norway around about the 4th or 5th of January and it used to be three months solid. Um, and then before Christmas and before you went on Christmas leave, you'd go mountain training. You'd learn all the basics. So you would learn all the rope work, all the rope skills, abseiling, and all the different things that they use, you know, the ability to move heavy equipment up and, you know, using things called roller haulage, which was just petrifying frigging system they invented, where you'd have a rope around you and the rope went up and there was a load of what they called mules and they'd run and it would just drag you up and you had to sort of run up the cliff you know, and it, it was absolutely horrific. Anybody that says they liked rollerball is a liar. <laughs> all right. I don't care who they are. Um, so, yeah, you do um, four to six weeks dependent on the package. And it would be um, the first couple of weeks would be basic skills, learning, you know, Tyrolean traverse and river crossings and all these kind of basic skills. And every day would be what they call a day yomp or a day walk where you do a route in the mountains, usually up in Scotland. Um you know, and then the amount of equipment and the distance you carry would increase and increase. And then you'd go into some sort of form of tactical exercise in a different area, you know, where you take the, the mountain skills and you'd apply them tactically. Um, and then from there, Christmas leave, then you go back to Norway and you start all over again. So you learn the basics of how you operate in Norway, how you ski, how you, how you fight on skis, how you fight on snowshoes, how you live, how you survive. And then you add the tactical element in. And then you'd usually tie, it would be tied in with a big NATO exercise, so teamwork or clockwork north or clockwork orange, I think they used to be, as I joined in with the, the name. So it was all kind of, you know, sort of that idea. But Norway was just, you know, Monday morning, you go in the field, you come out of the field sort of Friday afternoon, get back, taught in the core, always look after your weapon, your equipment, then yourself. So you'd clean, clean everything, get it serviceable, get it packed ready for Monday morning and hit the beer as hard as you possibly could, you know, on Friday night. Um, Saturday morning was always a ski race, 20k ski race, always done it hangover, hungover. Don't think I did one sober in my whole career, um, which all the athletes who listen to you are like, oh, no. You know, <laughs> the physiology around how bad that is for you is just outrageous. But, you know, I, I don't think for the first four or five years of my time in the Marines, I don't think I did a run sober, if I'm completely honest. So, um yeah, so ski race and then come back round about lunchtime, finished. Day off, they'd be football, the, the, you know, the first division as it was in the premiership. So you'd sit and watch that, have a few beers. Then it'd be dinner. It was always a steak on, on Saturday night. And then it was, you know, a massive session, you know, hard on it. And there'd be a sods opera, which is, you know, people do these sketches. It sounds quite 
you know, it ain't our fault, mum, but it was actually hilarious. It usually went horribly wrong. <laughs> there was always fights. There was always carnage, you know, and there was always half half the company in trouble the next day. Um, and if if you were particularly good with money, you know, around about 11 o'clock at night, you'd order a taxi and go down to the local town. But, you know, when you were getting paid sort of £27 a day plus about £4 extra and a pint at that time in Norway was 19 quid, you know, you loaded up, you preloaded before you went out. So you'd had a few drinks because you couldn't afford to drink too much. Um, And then Sunday would be sort of try and drink as much water as you can and then back in the field Monday morning, you know, and there's about seven or eight weeks of that, you know, looking back for health, not the best, you know, but used to, you know, one of the biggest things we suffered out there was dehydration, strangely enough, you know, minus 20, but skiing, the exertion, you know, you had to drink an awful lot. Mm. Um, so, you know, that, that was kind of, you, you learned, started to pick up things thinking actually in the cold, you'd never think dehydration was an issue. But then if you watch, you know, biathlon as a sport and you see some of them guys and girls, you know, they are inordinately fit. And uh, you see them when they're finished, they are absolutely, you know, drenched, you know, and they're, the loss of all the different minerals and all the different pe- bits from them sweating is, is huge. And a lot of them do crash quite badly when they get sort of off camera and out, out of the, the, uh, the finish line area, much like triathletes, you've seen them doing it, you know, you'd see that quite a lot. So, yeah, it was, it was intense and it was always like that, you know, and it mm. was, it was play hard, work hard and you know, you really did work hard. You know, mountain leaders, they're, they're just evil individuals, you know. They don't feel the cold. They never get tired. They can always run and ski faster. They can always carry more. And they, they're just irritating individuals who, you know, were just they never looked like they just got out of bed. They always looked like they were perfectly turned out. They always looked like their equipment was always on the ball. But, you know, that's why they did what they did and became what they were because, you know, that's what's needed to sort of keep guys and girl, girls motivated when you get to that environment so from all those experiences trevor what what would you say was your biggest sort of takeaway survival skill or survival experience it's kind of leads on to some of your questions at the end jay i'll be honest it's just never give up you know never ever give up and it sounds really contrite right but if you quit in two minutes you're gonna regret it you are, no matter what it is, it doesn't matter what you're doing. If you quit in two minutes' time, once you've got your breath back, once you cool down or had a drink of water, you're going to say, why did I do that? And you can never take it back. It's, it's eternal. So don't quit. Just keep going. And it doesn't matter if you're barely moving. It doesn't matter what you're doing. You know, If you're in a ward in CrossFit and you can barely do your strip pull-up or you can't pick up, you know, the 10 kilo dumbbells, who cares? You're still trying. And, and those are the individuals that don't quit. Actually, they're the ones in the military people call and cover because that's what you want. You know, yeah, you've got to have a certain standard of, of physical fitness. But actually, people who don't give up, people who don't quit, you know, then they're the people you want by your side. Because when it gets hard, they're still going to be at your side. They're still going to be there. You know, and that's what that organisation and things like the Parachute Regiment, you know, that's what they, they they really smash that into you. It's about who's next to you. It's about never letting them down, you know. Mm. So that would be, you know, it's not a survival skill per se, but it is in, in a more generalistic skill, to yeah. long term, should I say. You know, for me, just don't give up. Just don't give up, you know. And 
there's quite a few things, you know, in CrossFit, one of the, the coaches, and he just, whenever he sees you standing up, he's just like that, get hands on, get your hands on, you know, and I like that, you know, because I still need a push now and again, you know, big day at the office, long day, tired, early mornings, whatever, we all know, you know, and you just need reminding of that, you know, okay, you're right. Yeah, you know? those infamous um, three words, never give up, is that, it's that mentality, isn't it? It's, um, you know, I'm a firm believer that the mind is the limit and every now and again it will get the better of all of us. But if you can keep repeating those words to yourselves, uh, you know, those three words, then um, you, you pretty much achieve most things in life. I think so. I mean, unless you – I know you've had a couple of really elite sort of CrossFit athletes on the podcast I've listened to. And, um, you know, for them – their the limits of their physical ability and their mental ability they're close to it you know elite athletes that are in any sport are close to that for for average athletes you know and, and average i mean sort of people like ourselves you know we we don't get to our, our physical limits we just don't you know we think we do but if you've got a whoop or an apple watch or whatever you you know gathers your data of choice you look on there and you know you get off a wad and it's a 20 minute you know amrap and you get to the end and your average heart rate's 160 you know you haven't physically reached anything close you know yeah. um i hit a wad the other day and hit a 197 on my heart rate and i was like yeah okay now you're getting there that's <laughs> that's a bit much you shouldn't go that hard you're 54 you need to ease off sometime but uh you know we, we know when we've gone you know and and so I would say, you know, at elite level, they, they get there, both physically and mentally. For the majority of us, we, we don't until we understand. And that's what is another really good sort of application of chasing discomfort. You know, today I went to 60% of my ability. You know, maybe tomorrow I just push a bit harder and I get 61. And I'm always chasing that increase, that improvement, that addition. So that's, that's my thinking. And that's, you know, that's my takeaway from it all is I never give up. And that drives how I think and how I train and when I go to the gym, you know, how I want to be perceived, if you will. Yeah, and, and for me, you know, um, I've always admired the discipline that come with the military guys and the ex-military guys. And, you, you know, whether that's in a CrossFit background or uh, in a, you know, after the military working life, you can just see that the guys have... Um, almost like, again, a bit of an aura, I suppose, but it's, it's installed, it's built in them. And, you know, that, as, that can go a long way in life. And, and whilst I, I obviously promote that everybody chase discomfort, there's 24 hours in a day and you cannot just chase discomfort for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. So it's something that I've been working on um, over the last couple of years is, yeah, I love to work out and I love to work out hard, but I also have now making a, a priority and a discipline to also work in, you know, like those extra recovery methods because, you know, like all of us, I'm not getting any younger. I get a day older every single day, thankfully. And, um, you know, the discipline for me to wake up and do my stretching or me to do some intentional breath work or for me to have that cold shower or for me to go in the ice bucket after the long run or have that uncomfortable hot salt bath on a Sunday night after I've just done 80 miles cross country, you know, like, yes, there's hard physical stuff in there, but to drag yourself off the sofa 
when you want to quite happily just lay there and watch a you know mind-numbingly boring tv or yeah. a film you know that that discomfort also applies to pulling yourself up off the sofa and going and do something before you go to bed so you set your sleep hygiene right so you are you do get a good night's sleep you do recover you know you don't go and eat a dozen crispy creams every single day or you don't smash a bottle of whiskey um you know the night before a big session or so it's yeah look, it's um i told you i'll get on a little rant somewhere and that's, no, what- that's good but i agree i think I think what people need to to bear in mind is and, and the physical sort of training and, and the, the gymnasium and the fitness industry is quite bad for it they try and make everything generic mm-hmm. and it really isn't every single individual that goes to the gym has got to find what works for them and i think what they what i've seen is people don't split the two of what works for me and where, when is me using that as an excuse because it's hard you know if you go to i always use crossfit because that's what i like right but if you're a runner and you go to a running club and it's really hard and you come last and eventually you say oh you know i'm not getting any better well you really are you really are but just don't compare yourself find what works for you maybe running once a week works for you at this stage of your fitness journey in six months you might run four times a week and you might have improved massively or you know in crossfit you might scale a wad you know my my ambition in crossfit you know is to be an rx athlete that's it you know and i've still got work to do you know and i'm 54 i get older every time and i'm, I'm never going to give up on that you know no matter what i will be able to do every single movement and every single weight and every single time cap that's that's my ambition that's my goal you know, and I work towards it every single day. And I get and I advance my journey, not in compar- comparison to everybody else's. You know, you know some of the people who go to the gyms we, we go to. You know, I'll never be their standard. I won't be able to keep up. But I'll hunt them down as best I can, you know. And, and that's what I think people need to do is find out their method, what works for them, how, you know, do they make themselves move. You know, I've got a really simple thing that, when I'm sitting there and I don't want to move, but I know I've got to, I just say in my head, one, two, three. And when I get to three, I always stand up, no matter what, no matter how tired I am. You know, when I finish a workout, I just don't lie on the floor. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stand up. I'm going to start putting my gear away or cleaning it down or, you know, I'm going to help somebody else put theirs away. Just, just that little thing makes you just a bit stronger mentally. And if I can get my physical and my mental strength at the same level, then it's game on, you know, for me. I agree. I've been um, testing this little rule in the mornings because um, I sort of slipped into a, about 45 minutes for me on waking to get out the door. And uh, that's not good enough. So I've my alarm goes, I hit stop, and I count from three backwards, three, two, one, and I'm up. And uh, I've got it down now the other morning. I woke up at five and I was out the door at 5.22. So... I'll, I'll take that. That's like a, you know. Yeah, that's a, but that's a strategy. And, and, yeah. and everybody, you know, a lot of people just think life, you just get into this rhythm and you, this routine and, you know, oh, it's the same this week. as Well, it's up to you to change it, right? Wow. However you do it, you know, oh, I keep hitting snooze. I just, I, I've never used snooze in my life. You know, my alarm goes off, I wake up, one, two, three, and I'm up and that's it. You know, and the day started, whatever it involves whether I want to or not, you know, and you've just got to keep driving forward. You've got to, and that again is, 
you know, putting yourself in that uncomfortable position, which leads to that lovely phrase about being comfortable or comfortable comfort with discomfort or comfortable with discomfort, whatever you want to say around it, you know? Yeah. Be comfortable in, in being uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Nothing grows in the comfort gardens, we like to say. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It doesn't. No gains in there. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's, um, I remember reading a few years back, actually, like in, in regards to snoozing, because I used to be a serial snoozer. And um, I remember saying, like, why would you want to start your day with something that's not productive or unproductive? Like, if you're able to snooze, then just set your alarm back to the actual time that you'll get up when you snooze. Don't, don't be hitting snooze for 15 or 20 minutes. Buy yourself an extra 20 minutes in bed and, and actually sleep. But when, when that time is up, then you're up and you, you get out. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a great speech. I don't know if you've seen it. It's about making a bed. It's delivered by a guy called Admiral McRaven, yeah. who was a Joint Special Operations Command commander in the US military. And he says, every day, make your bed. You've started with something productive. And if you have a shitty day, at the end of the day, you've got a nice, warm, comfortably made bed to go back to where you can forget it all you know and it's like a really simple ethos just apply that you know yeah. life is traumatic and difficult there's great times there's bad times there's sad times there's you know happy times that is normal you know some days we're anxious you know and i'm not taking away from any anybody that suffers with anxiety because it, it's awful for them don't don't think that but we all go through that you know whatever it be you know my job last year was put at risk because of being furloughed and you know the lockdown that's an anxious time. Am I going to lose my job? Am I going to be able to pay the mortgage? Don't just accept it. Go and do something, which is what I did, you know, and I moved jobs. You know, I was very fortunate. It's not always easy, but that as an example, you know, don't sit on your hands and wait for the, the world and life to give you because it won't, I don't think, you know, and that's the same in life. It's the same in CrossFit. It's the same in running. It's the same in swimming, triathlon. Whatever it is, is your passion. You've got to earn it. You've got to work. You know, phrases, hard work pays off. It's true. Hard work does pay off, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Nothing great is easy, as they say. Yeah. Smarter men than us have said that, I think. <laughs> but no, that, that speech um, that you just quoted back there, the make your bed speech by the US, um, he's, he's in the Navy, isn't he? Yes, he is. He was a Navy yeah. SEAL. Yeah, it was, it's a fantastic speech, and I urge anyone to um, to go and... You know, listen to it it's on youtube um and it's uh, almost tear-jerkingly motivating and it's um yes yeah, it's, it's brilliant to... yeah it's really it's really clever as well it's a bit you know don't judge a book by its cover what does that mean you know and you know and and it, he, he's got sort of six to ten sort of tenets to apply in life you know be an agent of change well change doesn't have to be something huge and strategic and macro changes you know influence the people around you in some positive way you know, be it your kids, be it your family, be it friends, be it, you know, your friends at the gym or, you know. Um, and I think we lose that in society nowadays. And I'm not one of those who sort of 54 turning into a grumpy old git who says, oh, in my day. Not at all. But I think we become very sort of blinkered and, and insular in our, and siloed in our lives. And I, I think there's a loss of community in some way. Um, and, and we should all, you know, how can we be an agent of change for everybody's, you know, betterment if you will you know yeah. and in any small way you know one good thing you do that's something good if everybody did one good thing to for everybody else you know the world would be a really decent place 
you know, and it'd be a lot lot less traumatic watching the evening news, wouldn't it? So, you know, and I know that's a, you know, it sounds quite hippie and flowery for somebody like me, but I, I'm a genuine believer in that. You know, one small thing influence somebody's day because you don't know how their day's going. So, you know, you influencing somebody positively might just be the thing that makes a difference for them in a really shitty day for them. So, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I totally agree with you. I've been, um, since the start of this year, been journaling. And one of the questions that it asks you is, what's your good deed for today? And, um, it, you know, there's a lot of positiveness for yourself as well as the other person that you're doing that good deed for you know, can come of. And, um, you know, even if it's just asking a neighbour how they are, do they want to think up the shops? Um, and, you know, one of the scientific things that they say now is that's linked in with happiness and longevity is that sense of community. Um, you know, having, it doesn't necessarily have to be immediate family, but just, you know, looking out for people, whether that's helping someone cross the road or, you know, like, you know, there's a hundred different versions of what you could do just sort of walking mm. daily. But yeah, there's a, there's a, and, and we, we touched on it. This, this country's, you know, is like, is a bit of a roller coaster because at the start of lockdown, people were beating each other up over toilet rolls. And then when the actual full lockdown kicked in, people were clapping in the streets at 8 p.m. for the, for the NHS and the fantastic work they'd done. And, you know, then we're baking cakes and spreading it, you know, giving it to neighbours over the fence. And, you know, that that old sort of sense of, of community come back because, you know, when, when things get hard, you, you, you can't guarantee that you can do everything on your own. You do need no, to. No, I think that's a, I think that's a sort of, you know, the, that's the classic British mentality. You know, the British don't react well until there's adversity. And then they're, then they're like no other. You know, and, and, you know, you said at the start uh, about sort of the appreciation of people in the military. And it's not that people don't care. It's just not the British way. I remember going to America with my kids and being at SeaWorld. And at the start, the, the sort of one of the trainers, you know, one of the presenters of the show asked anybody who'd been in the military or was in the military, either the US, British or allied militaries to stand up. And the whole place, 10,000 people gave everyone a round of applause. And I just sat there because I'm like, I'm a Brit. I'm like, I'm not standing up. <laughs> and my kids are like, Dad, you were a Marine. You've got to stand up. And I was like, right, okay. And then everybody around is going, thank you for your service. That's just a difference in mentality. Yeah. I, I think, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm passionate about the military because it's a big part of my life. And I think the British public could be more appreciative. But I think a part of that is the fact it's just not the British way. I don't think it's necessarily a negative connotation towards the military. It's people like you who just, you know, expand their horizon a bit and just have an understanding of what those guys and girls go through. And so I think, you know what, they deserve, you know, thanks for your service. And I've had that a few times of late. It has improved. I think mm. Afghanistan, more than anything else, has brought it into the public's eye a lot more, you know, because obviously... You know, less a lot of our guys and girls were killed and seriously injured with life-changing injuries. And you know, there's been a lot written and said about that, as there should be. Um, but yeah, I think I think things like CrossFit for me, you know, it, it forms a nice community. You know, I've got some very good friends that I met at CrossFit. You know, and people I've known all my life, I'm not as friendly with as those individuals um, because you know it, it comes back. There's a shared bond. There's sharing suffering. That that. You know, and, you know, you just, it's a sense of belonging too. There's a real social element to, 
that, which I would say in sort of commercial gyms is not the same, you yeah. know? So functional fitness gyms and, and things like that, it, it's a different, different ethos, different mindset. But yeah, I think belonging and, and that sense of community is good. But ultimately, yeah, what, what did you do today? What was your good deed? What thing did you do? It doesn't have to be big, just one thing, you know? Yeah. I want to I want to dive into your CrossFit journey, but before we get there, I just want to sort of wrap up the military um, life. So, um, can you talk to me about some of your deployments and you know where where around the world that you was uh, positioned? Yeah, I mean, I was I had an interesting career in terms of the first half was quite traditional at that time, you know, sort of Northern Ireland. Um, there was very little going on in Northern Ireland and the Balkans was about the, the stretch. And then the second half, it changed dramatically, you know, um, <coughs> excuse me. And it went from sort of Northern Ireland, the Balkans, and then we ended up Iraq, you know, and Gulf War Two, and obviously we had Gulf War One, Gulf War Two, then Afghanistan, you know, and, and the tempo of operational deployments went from, you know, sort of one every three years to one every two and then one every 18 months. And, you know, so, I was I was fortunate that, you know, I got to go and I say fortunate I got to go because most people who got nothing to do with the military would just be sitting there listening to this thinking, who the hell are these people that want to go? But actually, that is what everybody wants to do. Um, you know, they want to go and they want to test themselves in that environment. You know, is is it the you know, are, am I good enough? You know, and it, it's the it's the ultimate Darwinian test, isn't it? Um, so, yeah, you know, all the standard Northern Ireland, Kosovo, um, Iraq, Afghanistan, all those sort of operational deployments. And then I did a number of different ones, um, a little bit at, sort of out of the ordinary, out in the uh, Arabian Gulf, doing maritime interdiction and things like that. Um, same in Northern Ireland, did a maritime interdiction role um, around the waterways um, down sort of on the um, northern, northwestern, uh, northeastern side. Um, so quite a few differences varied and, you know, I was lucky enough to do quite a lot of uh, training from Norway to the jungle, to the desert, you know, and, and things. So I had a really varied um, sort of career in terms of both the training and the operational side. Um, quite lucky. So, you know, ultimately I was very fortunate, you know, I, I, as, as other people you've interviewed have said, you know, they've lost friends and, you know, very close friends and in quite traumatic circumstances. So, you know, I count myself very fortunate that, you know, I, I did lose friends and, and, you know, I think about them quite regularly, not in a, a morbid way, but, you know, something just triggers that memory. Um, but I was also very fortunate that, you know, I came through unscathed, you know, a few cuts and bruises, I've left a mark, but nothing that's going to, you know, um, I suppose the only one we don't really know about is the sort of mental cuts and bruises you know, um, how they're going to um, come to the front one day or maybe never, you know. Um, I know you had Foxy on, didn't you, for a while. And he spoke really quite eloquently and, you know, quite bravely considering his world about, you know, how he felt and what it did to him, you know. And he's been a real, real shining light for that, you know, for PTSD and the effects it has. So, you know, he's to be really applauded for his, his sort of work on that. You know, he's brought some, you know, he's, he's managed to, get himself a living from it, which he, he more than deserves, but he's also really highlighted the issue, you know, more so than any newspaper or media article would or any politician. And there are some politicians doing some good work too, 
but you know he's done a really good job and you know he should be really sort of lauded for for that um in, in my opinion for sure but yeah I, I was lucky you know i got good operational tools i got a lot of good training i got a lot of great courses that not everybody gets to do and i had a, a really varied career you know my, my ex-wife used to hate it because I'd come home and say, yeah, I'm going. She said, oh, did you volunteer? And I'd be like, no, no, didn't. Of course, I obviously did, <laughs> you know, but used to lie to get myself out the door because that's what I wanted to do, you know. And, you know, it was difficult for her and, and the kids as well because, you know, in, in, in not in the, the sort of way it sounds, but you're quite absent from their lives. You know, a lot of milestones passed without you being there. Um, and I said I don't have regrets. If I, if I did, that would be the one thing, you know, being missing as much of their lives as I, lives as I have, you know, that would be my one thing I would say, mm. you know, and that's not me sort of getting emotional about it. It is what it is. I chose that life and yeah. I wanted that life, but that's, that's the one thing for me. Yeah. What was the, um, sort of out of all the countries then that you visited that you mentioned there, what was the most hostile country in, in your experience? They, they all vary, to be honest, Jay. And I've I, I moved into sort of security, um, corporate security and high, high threat security afterwards as a, as a job. Shocker, I know. And, um, but uh, do you know what? There's always hostility, but I never really picked up on it. And I would say the most hostile place I've ever been was when I'd left Yes, they were hostile, you know, but Northern Ireland, there was hostility towards you, but, you know, you're a Marine, you've got your green berry on, you, you know, you're invincible, you know, and that, and that, and stupid as that sounds, that's how the guys in data side think, you know, and that's how I thought. Um, but I think the most hostile place actually I've ever been to, I went to when I'd left and I went to Kosovo and I went up to the, the border with um, uh, Serbia and we were working on a project up there. And I actually walked in because you had like what were called parallel structures. So you had the Kosovan government and you still had an old Serbian government influence. And I walked into the Serbian controlled area and genuinely you could feel and I've never experienced it anywhere else. You could feel the tension and the hate genuinely. And I'm not I'm not a flowery sort of you know, feelings person, you know, you see me, you've met me, you've seen, we've talked when we've been training and what have you. That's just not me. You know, I might be able to talk a little bit, but I'm not that way. But genuinely, you could feel it. And it was like, wow, this is just like nothing ever, you know. And it, it all comes down to, you know, that individual um, sort of thing, that, that hatred between two, two sides. And, you know, you see it everywhere. You see it in football. You see it in sport, you see it in religion, you see it in countries, and that one really stands out in my, my head, you know, it was so vivid and so detectable that, you know, I was like, right, okay, need to watch what we're doing here, because this is, you know, this has the potential to go all sorts of wrong, so, you know, um, other places, it's different, you know, Iraq, the hostility was different, you know. I found Africa can be quite barbaric because life is cheap over there, you know. The Middle East, even though people think it's barbaric, it isn't because the Middle East is underpinned by sort of a 2,000-year sophisticated culture. You know, it's directed for sure, but it's a different type of barbarism, if you will, you know. And it's, it's all different, and you have to have the intelligence and the sort of emotional intelligence to be able to 
identify and, and see that. You know, it, it's all different from different parts of the world. So, but yeah, that that subsequent from my time in the military, Kosovo would be my, you know, that was the worst. In the military, you know, some of the places in Northern Ireland were pretty intense. You know, when you go into a bar at night, you know, two in the morning and you're going to kick everybody out, you know. But then if you went into London and tried to kick everybody out of a bar, there'd be some some overly hostile reactions. So, you know, it's it's to be expected. Yeah. For sure. Um, let's dive into it then, because we've touched on it on numerous occasions. But uh, how did you find CrossFit or how did CrossFit find you? Um, I got introduced to it by a friend quite a few years ago, about seven years ago. You know, and, and it was it wasn't in its infancy then. It was but it wasn't what it is now. It isn't, you know, CrossFit isn't quite, but it's borderline mainstream in, in a lot of ways. You know, a lot of people have heard of it. Um, and you know, I went along and I got into it and I never stuck to it just because the jobs I was doing at the time involved me being away and then I was back home for four weeks and then I was, you know, off somewhere else and I spent a lot of time away and I couldn't really get into it. So I never sort of drank the Kool-Aid, as you, you know, and, and sort of bought into it. Um, and then I moved out to Essex about three and a half years ago, sort of thought, I need to do something, I need to find something you know, because I, I looked at myself, you know, and thought, I haven't really got a hobby. I go to work, come home with my partner as she was then. And, you know, but I haven't got a hobby and I wanted to get back into training. And, you know, she was doing her triathlons and I got in the pool the first time I went swimming with her and nearly killed me. And I was like, yeah, I'm not doing that again. <laughs> so, and uh, I found, I just looked up, you know, CrossFit gyms in Chelmsford, Pula Fluke, found one and, and went and, uh, you know, Rich was there, you know, Rich, and, you know, he took me on my first session and went through foundation, and then the rest, as they say, is history. I've, you know, drunk the Kool-Aid and asked for another glassful and, you know, you know, fully bought into it, you know. I am genuinely bought into the cult of, so. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head there when you say cult, because, um, you know, if you was to if you was from the non-CrossFit world and you caught a CrossFit crew having dinner out somewhere, it's almost like they could be talking a different sort of level of English language with all the slang and slogans that come with... Um... Yeah. I think, I think also people use the word cult with a negative connotation, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be negative. No. Um, a, a friend I knew said, oh, yeah, I tried CrossFit. He said, I didn't understand what they were talking about. I was like, yeah, but that is part of You've got to learn what it all means. You know, yeah. once, you, once you learn... You know, it's not the same. So oh, I ain't got time for that. And it's like, ah, well, yeah. But yeah, yeah, that's kind of how I found it. And I've stuck with it ever since, you know. And you, you clearly um, you clearly go after it because I see you when you're posting your workouts, you know, your, um, your big sort of whiteboard sheet that you've got going on. Um, you're scribbling up some serious discomfort there. Um, what what I'm, I'm intrigued to know, Trevor, because really – you're setting the bar, you know, I'm, I'm 40 in August. Um, so you've got 14 years on me and, and I hope and pray that I make it, you know, to 54 and beyond and that when I'm at your age, I'm, I'm still getting after it the way that you do. So, you know, what, what's, what's your, what's your secret or what's your drive? What, what keeps you going back for more? Uh, I, like, I like the discomfort. I like the pain. If I'm honest, you know, weird as that sound, I'm not some, oddball who likes pain per se i like the pain of training and i like the 
I like the accomplishment, the feeling of accomplishment when you've put yourself through it. And, you know, that moment when you're like, I can't do any more. And you're like, yeah, I can. I can do one more. If I can do one more, I can probably do two. And if I'm going to do two, maybe I should try three. And, ah, there's 30 seconds left. Let's just keep going and I'll die at the end, you know? And I think that's, that's all it is, you know? I mean, anybody who's a really experienced CrossFit or CrossFit coach, look at the way I train and be like, oh, my God, that's so wrong. You know, I love volume. You know, if I could, I'd train six hours a day. I genuinely would. And I, you know, I love the long ones. I love Murph. You know, I love Murph for what it stands for, obviously. But also, you know, I, I like the length of Murph and the intensity. I like DT. You know, those are my, you give me a three or five minute sprint. What I hate it because mm. I just, you know, I don't have the gas to go flat out at that intensity. But you give me a 45, 50 minute, you know, or you give me a two and a half hour run. Yeah, that's that's me all day long. You know, I like that. So when they did double Murph, I was like, two hours of Murph. Yes, please. I'll have some of that. Yeah, that was a, that was an emotional workout. Probably. Oh, yeah, brutal. That's, that's got to be up there with, with one of the toughest. But um, like you said, just, just the honour to be able to throw down um, in, in, in someone's memory is, you know, you can only... You can't even touch, you know, what those guys went through on that mountain. Um, I read uh, Marcus Luttrell's book, who is who is the actual lone survivor um, yeah. that the film was based on. And um, Scott Jenkins, who we had on the podcast before, he, he said that there's a workout um, that's dedicated in his honour. It's called Fortitude. Um, basically, you pick a number of calories that's going to be tough, um, so like I think you said start 12 and build your way up but it's a 30 minute workout and you alternate every minute so you'll do like 13 calorie row 13 burpees for 15 rounds each 30 minutes but it's it's in honour of him because um, where he was all shot up and he couldn't walk he's, his mental game of our, for him to get off that mountain to survive, because he said that, you know he was going to just die up there on that rock face. He had to draw a line in the sand or the gravel and literally just pull himself over that line, draw another line, and he'd done that for two or three days until he was recovered by one of the elders um, in the in the villages up there in Afghanistan, and they've got this you know ancient uh, sort of ethos or, or rule, if you like, that if uh, if a foreigner comes into their village and they are injured or, you know, in a bad way that, that they have to help them. It's, um, I can't remember the, the, the name of it, but it's like their sacred sort of ruling that they must uh, help this person out. And then, yeah, eventually weeks later after they looked after him, cared for him and, and um, you know, fed him and, and got him back up the uh, He was saved by his, uh, his partners that come in and flew him out. And there's a, real emotional bit at, at the end of the film and in the making of the film where the the guy, the Afghani guy, he's now actually, uh, he's got a green card and he lives in America um, for the for the job that he done in saving Marcus. And those two guys meeting for the time, the first time, you know, it was real, real emotional. Yeah. So, I can I only... A lot of people though, you know, the military, you have a lot more individuals that have got the ability to draw the line in the sand. But a lot of people have that ability, you know, and, and you, you don't have to be able to do it to that extreme. It comes back to what I was saying earlier, in my opinion. You know, everybody, just draw your own line in the sand of what you're doing every day. Just go past it. 
And then if you draw that line, you can go again, whatever it is, you know, and that's a great way to just treat life. You know, it works hard. Just draw a line in the sand, just get just past it and then consolidate and then go again. And whatever you're doing, you know, it's always the way. And, and we can all do that. You know, we just, you know, those of us who've got the mental fortitude, some people have it more than others, you know, but strangely enough, people who appear not to have it when the chips are down, they do. They just don't have the ability or they haven't pulled it out of themselves. So, you know, um, and I think, you know, that's what I say to people, you know, training, whatever it is, just don't give up, you know, never give up. You can't take it back. And, but if you keep going, nobody can take it away from you. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a perfect time now, Trevor, for us to jump into our quickish fire uh, questions that we wrap up yeah. the podcast with. Um, yeah. So what's the one non-negotiable rule that you live by? Always 100%. That's it. 100% all the time. 100% effort, 100% of the time. Never give anything less. That's yeah. for me. Favourite quote? Uh, just a simple one. Never quit. Yeah. Quitting's forever. Pain's temporary. Yeah. It's a cliche. It's contrite. But it's true. No, agreed. 100%. Dream car? Two, really. I, I thought about these. E-Type Jaguar and Aston Martin DB4. I'm, <laughs> I, I'm old, you know? I like the classics. Yeah, very uh, very gentlemanly. Uh, like. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Classic English gentleman, stroke James Bond. Um, two dinner guests you'd invite, either dead or alive? Yeah, I got a, quite an odd, odd pick on that one. Winston Churchill and Stephen Fry. <laughs> I imagine the conversation would be mesmerising between them yeah. two. Yeah, I can uh, picture Mr. Churchill with his glass of brandy and his cigar, and um, yeah, Stephen Fry chucking out, you know, words of wisdom, yeah. getting flying across left, right, and centre. Yeah, I reckon that'd be quite punchy, actually. Yeah, yeah, now that would be a good dinner. Um, what's your ring walk stroke hype song? What's that song that gets you in the mood? Uh, it's a classic for me. Firestarter, the prodigy. <laughs> it's on my iPod, it's on my, on my phone, sorry. You know, and if I, if I don't feel like training as I'm warming up, I get that on and then it's game on. You can't, anybody that doesn't get, get motivated and puts that song on, nah, you've got to give up. That song's mad for it. So that one, yeah. Yeah, that's a big power song. Big power song. Um, book you've read more than once and why? It's a really crappy airport novel, as I call them. It's called Red Phoenix by an author called Larry Bond. It's not particularly anything literary. It's just a really decent book. You know, it's about a war, a war between North and South Korea and, and the sort of players behind the scenes in, in sort of Russia and the US. Um, and it's, it's just a good read. Yeah, I've read it. I could go and read it now. You know, I could literally finish it and go back to the start and start straight away again. Just one of those books, that, you know, catches me. Yeah, good. Favourite film? Uh, I've got two. One surprising. I like. Yeah, this is going to destroy any any <laughs> limited credibility I had at the start. And this is gone after this. Love Actually. Okay. My favourite Christmas film, other than yeah. other than Elf. Um, but yeah, I just I know there's something about it. Um, you know, if you if you think a bit more rather than just watch it as for what it is, if you mm -hmm. look into it and take some of the lessons that are in there, either meant or not. Um, and other than that, there's a, a great military film called The Odd Angry Shot, which is about the Australian SAS in Vietnam, which is the only 
film I've ever watched where the tactics are correct. And I'm one of those guys that can't watch a war film and go, you don't bloody do that, that's wrong. You know, and it's spot on. The tactics are spot on. It's a great film. And it's, it actually captures the humour better than any film I've ever seen. And it was made in the late 60s, early 70s. Oh, right, OK. I'll, um, I'll try and dig that out and give that a watch. Yeah, it's a good one. Mm. Um, what do you do when you start feeling down or a bit off? Oh, you know the answer to that, surely. I train. Yeah, I, I get in the gym. Just, you know, leave it all in there. Um, you know, the guy I train with at the moment, when I started training with him, he would give up. And, you know, I've got him to the point now where he's just like, you're one of your favourite expressions. Just got to embrace the suck. Yeah, get in there. Get the pain. And for however long you're in there, you're sweating. You, your brain can't think about that because you're concentrating on what you're doing. You leave it all behind and then, you know, you get to it afterwards with a, a bit more renewed vigour. You might be tired physically, but actually you probably go, go at the problem better. So, yeah, I train. Yeah. I've never finished a workout, um, maybe in the first five or ten minutes immediately after. But once, the sort of, once I've got my vision back and my lungs have um, got back into my chest, you know, I've never felt bad for working out. And, um, you know, I, I think there's, you know, we could talk about science and sports exercise and, you know, like for me, that mental aspect, that mental health aspect, that's, that is, it's my therapy. Um, you know, and I'm not saying everyone should go and smash themselves in a crossfit, crossfit workout, but, um, you know, just for example, last night, me and my wife took a walk around the farmer's fields here and we watched the sunset and, um, yeah, just, just, you know, even that physical activity of, of just a stroll through nature, um, it's, for me, acts as a reset, uh, puts things into perspective, and it, it's just a massive calming effect, you know, even though yeah. it can I'm be... With you. It's a quiet time, right? Even though it might be really loud, it's a quiet time. It's a quiet exactly. time for your brain. Yeah, you've got nothing else to think about apart from keep moving or, you know, focus. Keep breathing. Yeah, focus on the one goal. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, your favourite method of recovery? Do you know what? I'm really bad at this, so, you know, don't, don't use me as a number. I like training volume. I'm terrible at recovery. You know, I, I don't recover enough because I like the benefits from, to your last question, I like the benefits that training gives me, so I probably, I'm terrible. You know, I get antsy one day of not training and I'm like a cage lion, you know. And the wife's like, just go and train with you, you get on my nerves. You know, it really is that bad. You know, yeah. I, I am addicted to it, no doubt. You know, I just want to train all the time. So what I've learned is exactly what you just said, you know, is picking that thing that is still tricking me into thinking I'm training, but I'm not. Going for a walk, but don't walk 100 metres, go for a decent long walk. You know, get away. Don't take your phone and, you know, I see people walking there on the phone. Get rid of that shit. You know, put your phone away and see what's going on around you. Walk, you know. And me, me and the wife, we go out for a walk and, you know, sometimes during the walk, we don't talk for the first half an hour. We're just paying attention to what's going on. Yeah. You know, people watching, you know, seeing the scenery, whatever it might be, you know. So I, I like to be active in my recovery. And, and that, you know, that sort of also ticks that box that I feel like I've done something. You know, so I'm, I'm poor at recovery. I need to be better at it. Well, the, the long walks in nature, mate, sound pretty good to me. So um, I won't yeah. give yourself such a, such a bad uh, score on that one. Hmm. 
your spirit animal? I wouldn't say I have a spirit animal, but for me, if I had to identify with anything, and anybody that knows me would probably contradict this and be shouting at their podcast when they say listen to it, but I would go with a wolf. And only because I like the relentless nature of them. You know, they're not necessarily the fastest, the strongest. They just keep going. And, and hopefully, you know, throughout our chat tonight, you know, I've conveyed that that's my mentality. Just keep going. Just keep going. You know, one, one more step, one more movement, one more, one more, whatever it is. You know, I'm always one more. You know, the wife's like, we're we going to bed. I'm like, no, I've got one more work email to finish. You know, I've got, you know, and I don't just apply it physically. I apply it to everything, you know. Keep going. Be relentless. Be relentless in your pursuit of whatever it is you're going after. Yeah. There's um, there's some history, apparently, that we used to hunt with the wolves. Um, you know, even they were a wild pack, uh, you know, that we would hunt. Um, I suppose it's probably where the, like the husky method has come from for the guys that, you know, are, are down there in the freezing cold that they use them on their, on their sleds and that. But, yeah, there's definitely, for me, a connection um, with the wolf, you know, in regards to that that wild dog, but um, yeah, you know, over the years that they've they've helped us for sure. They used to follow them, and they used to actually mimic their hunting method, you know. Right. And they used to, you know, if you watch it, if you ever see any of the, the channels and they show wolves hunting, you know, one wolf will be in front and it'd be tracking the moose down through the snow, and then they'll just drop back, and the next one will take place and have a rest, you know. And you see it in sport, don't you? You know, you see people running, you have a pace set up. You know, yeah. in the peloton, in the bike, you know, it's that's that's where that all came from, you know, a long time ago, you know, in our consciousness way back when. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, we, we can learn a lot from nature. I'm positive of that. What's your mantra when the going gets tough? Head down, arse up. <laughs> <laughs> Just get on with it. Yeah. Yeah, the only way you get through it is to get to the other side of it, no matter what it is. And it's easier said than done, you know, it's very easy to be flippant and say that chatting to you you know but if you've got a problem or you've got something to do or you've got something to be you've got to get to the other side of it just yeah. keep going and that, you know that's my theme hopefully tonight that's come across i was chatting to a friend this evening who was in a recent uh, fitness competition um you know like a functional fitness competition and he, he said every time they was releasing a workout one by one and he was in this group with a team and there was four members two men two two women and every time um the workout released there was all the anxiety and the nervousness oh, i'm gonna be shit at this oh no i've not done that in ages and his response was every time just get on with it and then that's what they ended up calling their team name just get on with it so it's a, yeah nice it's a fantastic mentality to adopt because yeah you like know, I'm, I'm conscious you can talk yourself out of anything if you if you feel your oh. head face with that negativity so you know, why beat yourself up on it? Just just get it done, get into it. Totally. Favourite tweet, treat even? <laughs> uh, coffee and cake for me. Yeah? That's why I train so much, I reckon. I'm, you know, I can end up with some spare calories. Yeah, I think that's quite a, quite a thing for me. Cake. Cake's really bad and cake with coffee. Or when I'm feeling particularly childlike, cake with a glass of milk. <laughs> I love yeah. my milk, mate. I'm not going to lie. Um, yeah, that, that one for me, for sure. Yeah. What's, what's your favourite cake, then? Extra bonus question. Uh, I'm, I'm a traditionalist. You should have got that. Victoria Sponge, come on. It's, it's, <laughs> it's the king, queen and every prince of cakes, for sure. <laughs> um, favourite place in the UK? 
Lake District. Yeah. All day long. Yeah. Love it. You know? Um, uh, I know I was a Marine and uh, it sort of influenced a lot of my life. But, you know, I like the water, but I love the mountains. You know, there's, you know, when you get in the mountains, it's quiet. There's nobody else around. You just sit down, you know, get your flask out. No noise, just nature. And you look around. There's something, you know, there's some kind of living thing there. You know, just the mountains always moving. I don't mean living as we would understand living and breathing, but the mountains moving, you know, things are falling, it's changing, it's growing, it's dying, you know. Yeah, Lake District. Yeah, it's a beautiful place. Um, I've not been there for a while since my twins were born. I'm, I'm waiting for them to be able to get to at least five or six miles without whinging before we go back up there. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, I'll be looking to... Uh, to actually get in the lakes and do some some cold water therapies mid walk and uh, the yeah. wife is trying to persuade me to do the Lake District triathlon. But oh. I'm, I'm yeah, there's some serious hills for the bike and the run up there. I'm digging my heels in it, but she'll get her way, no doubts. Yeah. Well, if there is only one good thing about hills, is what comes up must go down, right? You say that. <laughs> I've I've been on a few rides and a few runs where I'm thinking, how come I've gone in a circuit, <laughs> but I've gone uphill the whole way? Yeah, um, um, I can feel your pain. I'm running up Snowdon in September, so. Um, oh yes, nice. I should nice. I shouldn't talk too early because that's going to come back and bite me on the ass for sure. Mm. Top bucket list pick. This could be something that you've either done or have to do. Um, I want to do an 8,000 metre peak. You know, there's only 14 in the world. I'd like to conquer one. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not easy. Um, you know, there's a lot to do. But, yeah, that's that's for me. Yeah. The, the previous guy that we had on the podcast, um, Johnny Wald, he's done four of seven. And he's got, um, I can't remember the peak that he's got booked next year. But he's, then he's got Everest booked for 2023. Yeah, Everest's gone off. I've done Everest Base Camp and Camp 1 and Camp 2. I just, you know, but um, it's something, yeah, that's something I'd really want to do. You know, hit hit an 8,000 metre peak. Have you read <coughs> Beyond Possible, Nims Perger? Yeah, yeah. I don't know know him. I know of him, you mm-hmm. know, and I knew of him when I was in. Um, yeah. he, he's different gravy, though, you know. You know, the, the speed they did it at. Um, you know, it's phenomenal. Not many people could do that. You know, the the Nepalese are a different different breed when it comes to the mountains. You know, their physiology is different. Um, you know, and what he achieved is, you know, I'm not sure you'll see the like of it again. Yeah, agreed, agreed. Very inspirational guy. Um, and like you say, just uh, just got a, an all round positive outlook on life. And it just you know just gets on with it sort of mentality. Never stop smiling, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, what's your favourite and least favourite exercise movements? I don't, I don't necessarily have movement favourites. Um, usually, I, I like, like I said, Murph and DT sort of longer workouts. I like them, and I hate gymnastics. You know, I'm not built for gymnastics. I'm, I'm almost the same width as I am height, <laughs> which doesn't make me a gymnast. And somebody's probably screaming at this, going, "Yes, you're the perfect shape." I am not the perfect shape. And if I am the perfect shape, I'm not the perfect person. Gymnastics are a challenge for me. So, you know, I struggle. They're, they are my daily struggle, mm. for sure. Or gymnasties, as people like to call them. Yeah. Um, favourite sport? Rugby. Union? League? Union. <laughs> yeah, all day. Yeah. Not, not just, you know, 
I, I, there's a few things I admire about rugby. You know, I like the fact that you've got 30 huge blokes colliding with each other and then they get a telling off from the referee and they call him sir and apologise. Yeah. So not only is that, you know, um, don't get me wrong, I like football and, I, you know, I'm not, you know, making some social comparison between the two. I just like the ethos in rugby. You know, get on. If people are hurt in rugby, they're genuinely hurt. You yeah. know, if people, even people who are hurt are still trying to get up and get back in. You know, it very much mimics the military mentality. Um, and it is, in, to all intents and purposes, a form of combat, right? Yeah, absolutely. It, it, for me, it's a bit like a martial art, you know, that same respect. You know, the guys will be warriors for 80 minutes and, you know, put their bodies on the line for their team. Um, but, you know, at the end of that, it's a handshake. And like you say, the respect towards the referee, I think, just shines how... Uh, you know the the rugby sort of standards and ethos is it's a I've got my boy in into rugby he's only four he's only doing you know like little scrummers the non-contact sort of you know just eye hand coordination passing and running and stuff but um, yeah uh, I'm not here yeah I'm not here to bash football um, but I just think for sort of life skills and morals and values rugby for me you know it's and it's, you know, don't get me wrong, it's not just footballers. You know, my, my son, it was, my youngest son's a very accomplished footballer, you know, and played professionally for a bit. But, you know, when he was younger, going to the matches and, you know, parents screaming, you're like, you really, you know, and it, you're correct, it's not bashing football and it's not bashing people. It's just, you know, it's a difference. You know, you can't have two sets of football fans literally sitting together. Rugby, you can sit next to each other and your team can get an absolute doing but you'd still buy the guy who supports the other team or the girl sitting next to you a drink at the and you know in the bar afterwards. Yeah. What's the difference? Why it's a ball sport, and yeah. actually, arguably you could say rugby should make the fans more aggressive. Yeah, you know. So yeah, uh, yeah. There's, there's, there's something to be learnt there. I think there's the mutual respect there, isn't it? Knowing that it's such a tough game. Yeah. You know, and it's. I always remember someone saying when you play rugby, you're for eighty minutes trying to pretend that you're not hurt and football's 90 minutes of pretending that you are hurt. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, uh, yeah, I like that. I've never heard that, but that's a good one. What advice would you give to a younger you? Uh, take a moment, yeah, for me. I was very impulsive, still am. You know, I still haven't learned this lesson fully. But take a moment, consider the choices that are available and, and don't just think about tomorrow, you know. If I have my time again, just think a bit longer term. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not saying think about retiring when I'm 18. That's, you know, that's not possible. But yeah, take a moment, you know, think about the choices and think, think further than you can see. Yeah, and just have a look towards your future and the future um, and where you want to be in it, I think, you know. And that's a time thing, isn't it? You know, at 18, the future is six months away. At 25, the future's a year away. At 40, the future's 10 years away. And at 50, it's 15 years away. You know, you just got to, that would be my, that would be my advice. If there's some strange doppelganger world and the young me's out there, remember that. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for self-reflection. Um, you know, and that, that comes in many different forms, whether it's a daily mini debrief um, of your day and your actions and, or your reactions um, you know what you've done good, what you've, what you've, I'm not necessarily done bad, but what you could improve on. Um, and then you know, there's also 
you know, like a more longer term sort of plans of, of, of making sure that you're, uh, you know, live in the moment, but also protect yourself uh, going forward, like you say. Yeah, there's a great book, and the name escapes me of it now, but it talks about what's called your inner chimp. Chimp paradox. There you go. Yeah. I'm reading it. Have, have a read of that. That's if, you know, anybody that wants to know about, you know, how you act and choices and thinking, read the chimp paradox, you know. And, and my chimp ruled me and, and made all my decisions for a lot of years. And, mm. you know, looking back, it's like... Oof. That would have been so much easier if you'd have got that little chimp under control. So, yeah, it's a brilliant book. I'm I'm probably about three quarters of the way through, and uh, it was like a light bulb moment in after the first couple of chapters of, you know, you can't wrestle the chimp. The chimp is five times stronger than you. Yeah, you have to you have to box it. You have to exercise it. You have to tear it out, uh, tire it down. So yeah, be smarter. Yeah, you recognise that the chimp's coming into play. So then you 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 overrule it with the human and then what that does is it upgrades your computer so that yeah. you default to the human rather than the chimp. But, um, yeah. And it, I've noticed it now, like if I'm on the, on the roads traveling, I see a bit of road rage and it's like, Oh yeah, there's your chimp popping out to say hello. Yeah. That, that's the great thing about it. Now you can sit back and go, yeah, calm. My <laughs> chimp's under control, but yours isn't. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's a cracking book. Um, future plans. What's in the pipeline for Mr. TT? Um, not too much in, out of the ordinary other than we've talked about, you know. Um, I'm very fortunate. I just started a new job, so sort of work, career, if, if you will, wise. You know, I'm really excited to be where I am. I'm, I'm very fortunate. So, you know, that's good. I was just got married, you know, two weeks ago, which at my stage of training is a bit, bit odd, but it, it just didn't seem right to call somebody 50-year-old your partner. You know, at my age, it's so no. And um, we got married a couple of weeks ago, so you know that was that was sort of a, a big step. Even you know, at fifty-four and having been married before, um, you know, and training, just keep going, go for that goal of being an RX athlete. Keep doing that, you know, and to to sort of tie tie the starting question. Keep chasing that discomfort, you know. Keep keep striving to improve. Keep striving for excellence for me. Well, congratulations on the marriage. Thank you. And uh, um, I'm stoked that you're, uh, I just love your, your ethos and your philosophy. Um, you, you know, just, just to wrap up in, in what you said in regards to just keep on keeping on. Uh, and I think that's a fantastic lesson for someone that's going through a real hard time. You know, it's very easy for, for me to say this because currently I'm in, in a good space, but I've, I've, you know, previously been uh, in a bad headspace. And, you know, if anyone is, is listening out there that is, is going through hardship, then just keep going because, you know, it doesn't last forever. Uh, and, you know, if you, if you are going through some real dark times, just reach out to a loved one, someone close by, or if, uh, if you don't feel that you've got that support network, then there's, you know, charities out there that you can reach out and touch base to. So, um, yeah, I agree, mate. It, you know, it's a really great point. And it, it's, you know, in a nice way, you know, if people take nothing away from listening to this than that, you know, I, I, I applaud that totally. There's a great quote from Roosevelt. And he said, when you get to the end of your rope, tie a knot in it and hang on, <laughs> you know, and hang on. You know, if you need help, ask for it. Don't, you know, too, too many people don't ask for help, you know. Um, 
you know, there's going to be hardship in everybody's life. Nobody has it, has it easy their whole life, you know. Ask for help, you know, get help, whatever it is. It doesn't matter how small or how big the problem is, you know, there's always going to be somebody who'll help you. You've always got a friend who will do more than anybody else. You've always got somebody you know who can help you or somebody that somebody that somebody knows will be able to put you in the right direction. So, you know, keeping quiet is not an option anymore. Not, not nowadays, mobile phones, social media, you know, don't it's all out there and helps available no matter what you've got going on you know just don't give up keep the keep the fight i say yeah and what what a perfect way to wrap up the conversation trevor it's been great chatting to you mate and catching up with you um yeah keep chasing that discomfort always mate thank you for your time i appreciate you asking me to be on it it's been a pleasure and an honor and uh, I look forward to catching up with you at the gym at some point and getting my ass handed to me. <laughs> Crashing a monster workout. Where, where can people find out more about you, Trevor? Uh, to be honest, I, I don't really, you know, I'm not out there. I'm not a particularly competitive athlete. So, you know, you won't see me, you know, you can hit me. I, people can hit me up on Instagram or, you know, on uh, Facebook. Um, I'm more on Instagram. I don't post a lot. And what I do, you've seen it, it's all about training there's there's the odd bit of hill walking and maybe a you know the odd social event but mostly it's me blowing out my ass in, a, in some kind of crossfit type thing so but yeah on instagram you know um t terrell 6064 i think it is off the top of my head yeah you can catch me there um yeah you know and anybody wants to chat or anybody wants anything if it can help anybody in any way yeah my door stroke phone always open so you know, get in touch. If I can ever help anybody, I'm always looking to help people. My good deeds for the day. <laughs> mega, mega. Great stuff. Right. Thanks, Trevor. Let's wrap it up. Cheers. You take care, Jay. Regards to the family. Be safe. Cheers, mate. Bye. Cheers. Bye.